spending some time with Joseph tonight were well said by one commentator who put it like this. He said, among the most prized possessions of men of past centuries was a fine sword. In the East, it was a Damascus blade that was valued for its strength and edge. During the Renaissance, the weapon of choice was a rapier, cast and hammered through a secret process in Toledo, Spain. Spanish steel being known as some of the strongest you could get at the time. In the 19th century, in the English-speaking world, nothing was thought better than a Wilkinson sword used by British officers in the Battle of Umdurman. I probably pronounced that wrong, but it was the last great cavalry uh, charge. Swords have been immortalized in mythology as well. You might think of King Arthur's broadsword Excalibur pulled from the cloven rock, which, of course, gave it you know magical powers, and that's all part of the fairy tale. We don't go along with all of that, but uh, more recently, swords play a prominent part in some movies. Uh, different stories. Frodo Baggins had Sting, and you know it seems like when you go to sword shops, they have you know Glamdriel and all these swords that are based off of J.R.R. Tolkien's novels. Right? So swords have played a, a huge part in that. You know, delivering from our enemies is the idea. When you have a sword like Sting, and it, and it tells you where the orcs are, then you can do better fighting against them. Nevertheless. Let's go to the scriptures, because the scriptures have much to say about swords. And I would remind you of Ephesians six seventeen that part of the whole armor of God we are to put on is uh, and to take up that offensive weapon is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And you continue that thought, and it goes on to say, praying with all supplication. And so the spoken Word of God, the rhema, is the translated word there by Paul in Ephesians 6. The spoken word of God is the sword of the Spirit. Think about that when Jesus was in temptation. He spoke the scriptures, and eventually the devil had to flee. Hebrews 4.12 reminds us that the word of God is quicker, quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Two different kinds of swords, primarily in Roman culture. One would be a large Thracian broadsword. Uh, that's not the sword referenced in Hebrews 4.12. The Thracian broadsword would be the sword in Revelation that when Jesus comes back on that white horse, conquering and to conquer, he comes traveling. That's the kind of broadsword that would be coming from his mouth there. So don't confuse the two types. The type of sword referenced in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse number 12 would be um, best described in our uh, in our mindset, is more of a scalpel. Now, it's not a scalpel, so don't confuse the two. But it's sharper than any two-edged sword. And Romans would use these small swords uh, to, to do incision-like cuts. Think of more surgery-oriented rather than warfare-oriented. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's quick. It's alive. It's powerful. It's capable. It's, it has a, a dynamic about it that, that it, it is living. And so it is sharper than any scalpel you can ever find. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. The verse goes on to talk about it dividing asunder between uh, joint and marrow, and between soul and spirit, the very inward part of who we are. So swords 
uh, have you know have that capability when used by the great physician. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress. Pilgrim, if you remember in that story, he carries a right, true Jerusalem blade. If you read Pilgrim's Progress again, uh, keep keep your eye out for that Jerusalem blade. That's his way of saying that the Christian is armed with God's word as his sword. There's another kind of sword this commentator went on to describe. He said that is the sword of a human life so shaped and honed and tempered by God through the fires of life that it becomes a mighty blade of deliverance, a sharpening, a daunting instrument of salvation. This is what we've been seeing in the life of Joseph. Now, we know the rest of the story. Hindsight's twenty twenty. So right now, Joseph is still in that tempering phase. He's still in that sharpening phase. But eventually, he's going to be wielded by God once he's fully prepared to bring great salvation and deliverance through his humility and his leadership under Pharaoh to be able to have the wisdom to supply want in time of famine. Seven years of laying up against the seven years of want. Uh, that's how Joseph will physically deliver the world from famine through God's help, but then also there's a greater spiritual deliverance that he brings to his own family being used by God in that. And so Joseph, sharpening of his life to such an edge that he becomes a singular instrument of redemption for his day. It began when Joseph... This writer said, as a callow, insensitive, innocently arrogant youth, I don't know about all that, but how arrogant was Joseph? Maybe he, maybe he's seeing that in his evil report that he brought against his brothers. I, I don't know. But he was sold into Egyptian slavery. A bitter experience, and yet I have a hard time pinpointing an, ex, an, an expression of bitterness from Joseph. A bitter experience, but it doesn't come out of him when you study his life. Now, there's a bitter weeping when he's reunited with his brothers, and you can sense the the, 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 the hurt of his heart, and, and it's too much for him at one point, and he has to withdraw and go and just weep, uh, weep tears. And so, a bitter experience, and yet, through it all, you see God's grace seasoning Joseph with a sweetness, comes to the place where he actually can forgive his brothers, trusting in the Lord that God means it for good even when they mean it for evil. And so, as we think about chapter number 40, I want to draw your attention to what I believe are the center verses of this chapter. In a symmetrical uh, purview of this, you'll see, I believe Moses is driving us to consider these two verses, because it's going to prepare us for what will happen in a couple of years after Joseph has been in prison. Look at verse number 14, if you would. After Joseph interprets the dream of the butler in particular, he asks the butler, he pleads with the butler, and he says these words, but think on me. Same root word as remember me later on that we'll see. Think on me when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness 
I pray thee unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this H-O-U-S-E house. Interesting. For indeed I was stolen away out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also have I done nothing that they should put me into the D-U-N-G-E-O-N dungeon. Lord, I pray that you'll encourage our hearts in your word tonight and help us to see Joseph and to consider his plight and also to look beyond that to see how you're orchestrating circumstances that are beyond his control to lead him to a place that really the way up is down. And he is at rock bottom here, Lord. And the only way for him to go from this point is up and and what and up that will be as he ascends to second in command under Pharaoh himself in his day. This is one of the greatest nations of the world. And really he would be the vice president of the world ruler of his day eventually. But Lord, he can't see that here. He just sees his dungeon. It is a house, Lord, and and that's where he is. But I just pray that you'll help us to not lose sight of what you might do and help us to be certain, Lord, that we're in the center of your will, no matter where that might carry us. And may we have our faith strengthened in you. And Lord, may we also be vessels and instruments to be used to bring others to a saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask you, Father, to use us to do this. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A thought I'd like for you to ponder and take with you through Genesis chapter number 40 is simply this way. Being certain that you're in the center of God's will will lead you, I believe, like Joseph, to carry your faith your faith in God to those to whom He leads you. Consider the circumstances of Joseph in Genesis chapter number 40. I'll say that statement again so that it can resonate with you and you can ponder it deeply. Being certain, and that is key, every word is selected on purpose. Being certain, without question, without doubt, with a full assurance that you are right in the center of God's will, whether that's on the mountain or whether that's in the valley, whether it's in the house or whether it's in the dungeon, whether it's in Potiphar's Potiphar's care or whether it's the keeper of the prison, whether it's with your brothers in the field or with your father at home, I'm thinking of Joseph, knowing with absolute certainty that you're in the center of God's will leads us to carry our faith in God to those to whom He'll lead us. Through this, Joseph is going to encounter a couple of people that need God. And this is all part of God's plan for him. Some have called it another test for Joseph's faith. I agree with that. Now, before I go any further, I do want to mention there are other, there are other uh, preachers who have taken a different perspective on this than I do. Uh, not to say that you know they're wrong or anything. I think there's an application to what they made, but I think maybe they're taking a little more liberty than the text allows in some areas, personally. And maybe they would say the same thing about me. I don't know. But as you look at Joseph, I don't see anything in here that you can dogmatically, I mean just forcibly dogmatically say he's lapsed in his faith. Um, the application, it, it was put well by Wearsby, 
the application point simply is this, and this will preach, okay, don't get me wrong, this will preach, and we need to hear this message too. But he, he uh, submits that Joseph actually wavered in his faith and began to trust in men rather than God. Now, I'll let you determine whether that's in the passage or not, whether you can take it to that extent. Regardless of you see it as interpretation, I think it is a valid application point if you apply it that way and see Joseph as turning to men to try to get him out of the dungeon rather than waiting on God. But I do think it's taking, uh, taking that a little bit further than the text goes. Because Joseph here, he just has a patience about him and I see some elements in his willingness to interpret dreams and particularly in a phrase that he uses that demonstrates to me he still has faith in God. He still has belief that the Lord will use him for something greater. But a test of faith, perhaps, Joseph here in prison is going to face and uh, he keeps himself pure from the seduction of Potiphar's wife, and he keeps himself spotless from the world, the temptress. But because he remained pure, he's going to suffer imprisonment for it with false accusations. And so now he's here in this prison in the king's ward, Pharaoh's ward. And uh, so, you know, one, one commentator asked it this way, has Joseph abandoned his dreams? Uh, we ask that. Well, if you go back to chapter number 37, there were a couple of key dreams that Joseph had that would have affirmed to him that God had great things in store for him. And yet now it looks like that's been turned on its head. Where's God in all of this? Those dreams that, you know, the 12 sheaves are going to bow down and the sun, moon, and stars are going to make obedience to who? To Joseph? How is that going to happen when he's in the prison house here? So has he abandoned his dreams? I submit to you, he has not. And he maintains his faith in God. And this is proven by his willingness to interpret dreams, uh, the dreams of the butler and the baker. And uh, hopefully you'll notice tonight, if I don't slip up, I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to on purpose use the name butler and baker because I believe the the King James translators here have done us a favor, and they've already alliterated it for me as a preacher, and why would I undo that and bring in the word cupbearer? I don't know. I think butler works just fine. And so uh, we'll talk about that here in just a moment as we get into the text itself. But has Joseph abandoned his dreams? Has he lost faith? I don't believe so. Um, after everything has happened, I believe he's still convinced of his ability to understand the dreams that God has given him. This is a mode of revelation in this day. We need to understand that. Dreams, uh, the, the canon is not closed as we have it here from Genesis to Revelation. God reveals himself in many ways, and so he will reveal some, some things here through this dream. But Joseph nailed it in that uh, God has put him in this adverse situation, uh, perhaps to test his faith, to see... You know, Joseph, are you going to make it through here? Yes, Joseph is going to come out shining through this by the time it's all said and done. As Joseph gives the interpretation of the dream, you'll find out it's fulfilled to the letter. Everything that Joseph says is going to come to pass. I'll have an application on that as we continue on. Uh, when we get closer to seeing his interpretations of those dreams and understanding how God has revealed 
what will occur in the lives of these two men in preparation for what he will later do for Pharaoh and deliver the entire nation of Egypt based off Pharaoh's dreams. Everything just like he predicted. Joseph and Daniel are two key people that have we have recorded for us on the pages of Holy Scripture that they were gifted by God with the ability to interpret dreams. And so, letting the text stand where it is and understanding how God is working in this damn time, I want you to notice first off with me uh, how Joseph's faith is being tested. Look at verses 1-4 through four with me if you would. And it came to pass after these things. After what things? Oh, the whole soap opera with Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and all of that false accusation and how Joseph is in prison. It came to pass after these things. So there's some element of time in between Potiphar's wife's accusation and Potiphar putting Joseph in the prison and what we're reading about here. I don't know how long he's been there. Some commentators have pinned it down uh, to how old he actually is. You can go later on and see he's exactly 30 years old by the time he's elevated under Pharaoh. So do the math backwards. You'll get a good time frame here, I think. Notice as his faith is tested, we observe in verse number 1, there's an offense that is made by Pharaoh's officers. An offense that's made by Pharaoh's officers. It came to pass after these things that the butler of the king of Egypt and his baker had offended their lord, the king of Egypt. So who's offended? Pharaoh, none other. That's not a man you want to cross in this day. In this day and time, you can be second in command and then at a whim of a Pharaoh, you'll be in the prison and you'll be in the dungeon. That's how fast things can flip. These men find that out. Now, I, it's not stated here what their offense was, but uh, when I was studying this, uh, one of the commentaries that, that I find helpful occasionally and, uh, and has some really good things in it at times is the Tyndale Old Testament commentaries. And uh, Derek Kidner uh, wrote that commentary for Genesis in the TOTC, and he made a comment that I had to ponder. He, he says this sometimes, you know, if you read his writings, you'll find out at times it seems like he's defending the King James in the authorized versions. At other times, at authorized version, at other times it seems like he's not really doing that much defense of it. So uh, he made a comment in there about the word offense. He said, the word offense is, and here's the word I took up issue with, <laughs> Mr. Kidner, misleading. The word offense is misleading or misguiding or something to that too. And I stopped and I said, now, Dr. Kidner, what do you mean it's misguiding or it's misleading? I think it was misleading. I said, how can you say it's misleading? How, how would the King James translators ever seek to mislead us as English readers? Well, I think if we take an understanding, you know, and we and we use the language of today and impose it back on the English of the authorized translation, then we can wind up misleading ourselves, but not because of any any misleading by the translators, if you're with me. So, what does it mean to offend somebody? Well, if you look it up in Webster, uh, you'll find a long list of definitions there. If you look down the list a little further, you'll find out it does mean, you know, like what, we, what we think of maybe offending someone, like you hurt someone's feelings. And so, if you read into this verse that 
well, this butler and this baker, they just hurt Pharaoh's feelings, and he felt like throwing them in prison. I don't think you're looking at the right definition of the word offense. The very first definition that's given by Webster in his 1828 dictionary on the word offense points to a breaking of the law. So let's let the word stand, Dr. Kidner. With all due respect, there's nothing misleading. We just need to open our dictionary or get out your smartphone and in three seconds look up a word that you maybe didn't understand quite fully and we have a world of knowledge at our fingertips and we won't even use it. Take out your smartphone, look up the word offense, and you'll find out the first definition that's given is that of breaking the law. Why were they in prison? They broke some kind of law and they offended the king Pharaoh. Uh, I think one commentator pointed out the fact that both of these two men have offices that they're over that have to do with what the king ingests somehow. Uh, the, the, the butler would be over his cup and the baker would be over his meats and all that he eats. So what he drinks and what he eats. So maybe he got sick after he ate a meal and said, I don't know which one of you did it or which one of you are culpable of it. I'll find that out later, but you're both going in the pen. Maybe. I don't know. That's just my glorified imagination of how it might have occurred. Pharaoh getting sick and saying, let's get to the bottom of this. Could be. But there's an offense nonetheless. I want you to notice, though, the butler and the baker here. Butler is a good word. All the modern commentaries, it seems like every one of them are going to point you to cupbearer. I'm going to stand again. This just seems like one of those messages tonight, doesn't it? Can I stand with the authorized version here again tonight? I love this Bible. I love the King James. Cupbearer, okay, I don't want to mis mislead you here tonight. Uh, Cupbearer is a good understanding. But historically, and verify this, you know, make sure I'm not going off on a, on, on a whim here, but I don't think of cupbearers being back in the days of the Egyptians in which Joseph is living. I think of cupbearers being more around Artaxerxes' time in the days of Persia. So let's stand with the translators again. Historically, I think they're more accurate to say butler. Not only that, uh, the fact that he is the butler over what the king's going to drink. Etymology again. Do a little research on the word butler. Does it sound anything like the word bottle? It's French in its origination. Bottle. The French word for bottle. And so butler is a bottler. Bottler, butler. You know, but again, we, we have a lack of understanding. Seems like I'm also quoting a lot of movies tonight, so let's just do another one. Uh, maybe you've seen the movie Clue. If you haven't, then you're not really missing much. But uh, in there, there's a comment, you know, I'm, I'm going somewhere with this, okay? Hold on with me. I'm not just going to Hollywood to try to, you know, entertain you. I'm actually pointing out how Hollywood has helped redefine our understanding of what a butler is today. You think of a butler, you think of Wadsworth, you think of maybe some of the sitcom shows that, you know, that I, I grew up watching, Mr. Butler, or maybe you think of Lurch. I don't know. Um, da -da 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 -da. Okay. <laughs> In the movie Clue... Uh, as the people are coming in, 
to the house there where all of the things are going to go down, and we're going to find out who did it with what where and all of that, you know, the clue, maybe play the board game. Uh, in there, um, there's a comment that's made by Wadsworth, and he says, I'm merely a humble butler. And to the tune to which, you know, Colonel Mustard says, well, what exactly do you do? And Wadsworth pipes out, and he says, I buttle, sir. What does a butler do? I buttle. Well, do we even know what a butler is supposed to do? The, the origination of who a butler is would be to a high official, a bottler of a prince or, or a king of a nation. Think France, you know, think rulership in world history. The butler uh, position comes from that. So, again, let's just stand with the translators. Bottler. Why can I say that? Because the context is king. In just a moment, when this man tells Joseph his dream, he says, you know, these grapes, they came from a bud, and then they grew, and then, you know, the, the grapes came forth, and I took the grapes, watch now, I took the grapes, and I squeezed them in my hand into Pharaoh's cup. Bottler, bottler, not cupbearer, bottler, he's bottling the king's grape juice. Yes, I said grape juice, not wine on purpose. Okay, faith tested. There's an offense by Pharaoh's officers. The butler and the baker are who are involved in this offense. Notice God's providential placement of them in the prison ward with Joseph. Look at verse number 3, if you will. And he put them, Pharaoh put the butler and the the bottler, he put the butler and the baker, the chief butler and the chief of the bakers. He put them in ward in the house of the captain of the guard. Is that Potiphar? I won't argue with you if you say that it is. I don't know if I can be dogmatic about saying it's Potiphar. It does say captain of the guard and that's the same title given to Potiphar. If it is Potiphar, it would make sense why he would bypass the keeper of the prison and put these men in Joseph's care because Potiphar has personal knowledge of how God's hand has been on Joseph. So, I think there's good argument on both sides of that. But those are the two ideas. It's Potiphar, but it's not spelled out that it's Potiphar. So the captain of the guard, they put him into prison, the place where Joseph was bound. That tells us this isn't a vacation. Joseph is in chains. He is bound here. He is within boundaries. He might have a certain amount of liberty, but that liberty only goes so far, and he is, he is bound. And we see the providential placement of these two men right where Joseph is. Do you notice this in verse number 3? The dreams of the cupbearer and the baker, the dreams of the butler, thank you, and the baker, spoke of life and death. We haven't talked about the dreams yet, but when we see them, the butler's dream will speak of life, the baker's dream will speak of death. In this way, it was Ross in his commentary, Creation and Blessing, said, In this way their dreams anticipated the dreams of Pharaoh, which spoke of plenty before the famine, the prospects of life before the prospects of death, the polarity of ideas in these dreams corresponded to Joseph's experiences of moving from favor to slavery in chapter 37, from bounty to bondage in chapter 39, and finally from prison to dominion or kingship in chapter 41. He, has, he had a way of putting that. The contrast, the polarity. 
in all the experiences of Joseph and the dreams that he interpreted, the Lord God was demonstrating his sovereign authority over success and failure, over bounty and famine, over life and death. Now, I had to stop and pause there because he's throwing out words like perseverance and sovereignty, and and uh, and, and I had to really think that through. I think Dr. Ross is, is on to something here because God is sovereign, is he not? Is he not sovereign? He is or he isn't. And he is sovereign, yes. We agree with that. Is he not the giver, the author of life? Now, is he not also the one that can end our life? There is a sin unto death, I pray not for it, John said. Anytime we usurp that by harming our fellow man, taking a life that doesn't belong to us, or taking a life that doesn't belong to us, meaning our own, we overstep, we transgress our boundaries, and we wind up in the realm that belongs to God, life and death. I agree with Dr. Ross. God is sovereign over these. Success and failure, prosperity and, and failure. Success, you know, in the way God defines this, is when we meditate in His law day and night. Then we'll be like a tree planted by the rivers of water. So, not defining success the way the world does. But here, God is revealing Himself to Joseph in a way. But does that negate Joseph's free will? That's the question where we would uh, we would have to have a deep discussion with our Reformed friends, would it not be? Because they would say perseverance, you know, if you don't persevere, maybe you were never saved to begin with, those kind of arguments. Uh, they would, you know, they, they, they might look at this and take perseverance to a level Dr. Ross never intended, perhaps, reading into his, into his words. Not prepared to go there. But I think that we can see Joseph exercising his free will in the midst of God's sovereignty. It's up to him. He doesn't have to even look in on these men, and yet he does. And then when he sees them, and they look, as he said, sadly, why look you so sadly? He didn't have to ask that. He could have just said, hmm, what's wrong with them today, and went on about his business. He could have chosen, he could have chosen to ignore them, but he didn't. He chose to give himself to them. He chose to serve them. In verse number 4, you notice the suffering servant. Read verse 4 with me. And the captain of the guard charged Joseph with them. And look at these words. Maybe you want to underline this. So you see it again when you read Genesis 40. And he served them. Joseph is in a place where he's been commissioned with these men. He's given the charge of these men. And he did not hesitate to serve them. He's a suffering servant making the connection suffering servant faith has been tested notice secondly that joseph is going to demonstrate his faith we see faith shown not only do we see faith tested in verses 1 through 4 we see faith shown in verses 5 through 19 notice with me the divine appointments that we see in verses 5 through 8 the first part of it divine appointments yes divine appointments of these dual dreamers Verse number 5, read it with me. And they dreamed a dream. So it says he served them and they continued a season in ward. And after they were there for some amount of time, obviously getting to know Joseph a little better, there was some kind of relationship at least that they had as he served them. They, who's that? The bottler and the baker. They dreamed a dream, both of them. 
each man his dream in one night. Not different nights. In one night. Two men, two different cells, polarized, two different offices, totally unrelated in some senses, and yet in one night, they both had dreams that have similarities as well as striking differences that we need to pay attention to. In one night. This, I submit to you, was no accident. This was not mere coincidence that they just happened to dream such similar dreams in one night. As Joseph was serving them. So you see how whatever happened with Pharaoh put them right where God wanted them to be. And now Joseph has an opportunity to witness to them about his God. The God that stands in stark contrast to all the Egyptian gods that they know. Now, I don't know if they've had dreams before. The text doesn't say. But in this day and time, there have been, there have been things that have been unearthed and we've found in, in tombs and different things, books that the Egyptians used to interpret dreams. And you'll have symbols and what the symbols mean and, and all of this. And they had books that they had compiled about interpreting dreams. You're not going to be able to get to any of those books. You're not going to be able to talk to Pharaoh's musicians, his magicians, if you will. Uh, Excuse me. You won't be able to find Pharaoh's magicians while you're down in the dungeon. Perhaps this speaks to a little bit of their perplexity and their countenance. In that Joseph observes them and they look. They have uh, literally an evil face. (laughs) Why look ye with a hurt face, with with an evil face? The word is is in the Hebrew... uh, evil, um, uh, hurtful, sad is a good translation. Why do you look so downcast? What's going on? There's something uh, hurting you. And Joseph sees that. And he inquires. These divine appointments by dual dreamers, they dreamed a dream, both of them. Each man according to the interpretation of his dream. And the butler and the baker of the king of Egypt, which were bound in prison. Joseph came in unto them in the morning and looked upon them, and behold, they were sad. And he asked Pharaoh's officers that were with him, verse number 7, in the ward of his Lord's house, lowercase l, saying, Wherefore look ye so sadly today? The word sadly is the same root that you'll see translated later about Pharaoh's dream in that the the ill-favored cows, the ill-favored kind. So these guys look pretty sick about whatever they dreamed about that night. They look ill to Joseph, and he's picking up on it. He says, why do you look like you're hurting? What's going on here? There's something happening. This was one night. He goes in and checks on them and finds out each one of them have this downcast countenance. Joseph's quick concern brings out another aspect of him. This is a comment that I did agree with Kidner on, by the way. He says, besides the efficiency and integrity, Joseph's a very efficient man. He's, he's a man of integrity. It says his immediate reference to God rings true. It was the habit of his mind. And Kinder gives us some references. Chapter 39, verse number 9. If we read this, we go back and we see, There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back uh, anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How can I... How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? If we look at chapter 41, verse 16, we see it. And also chapter uh, 50, uh, chapter 41, 
If we turn over there, look at verse number 16. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Look at verse number 51 of the same chapter. Joseph called the name of his firstborn Manasseh, for God, said he, hath made me forget all my toil and all my father's house. You see what, what Kidder's saying here. He's saying this was, this was a prominent thought and a prominent meditation of Joseph's heart and life that exposes and betrays itself as he speaks with others. Joseph has encountered these dual dreamers in verse number 5, and they have shared with him their disquieted dispositions in verses 6 through 7. Disquieted dispositions. Now notice how Joseph will demonstrate his faith in verse, verses 8 through 19. We see they're disclosing distresses. They're going to share with him all that's going on. Look at verse number 8. We continue our reading in chapter 40. They said unto him, We have dreamed a dream. There is no interpreter of it. And Joseph said unto them, Do not interpretations belong to Elohim? Do they not belong to God? Tell me them, I pray you. Tell please to me. Joseph is inviting them by his own choice to, for them to share their dreams. He says, hey, God, God's the one who knows all of this. It's not those... It's not those magicians that Pharaoh has. It's not that that interpreter's book that you know they're writing up. They wouldn't know that if it weren't if God hadn't revealed it to them. God is overall. So He just now has polarized all the gods of Egypt, all the idols of Egypt, with the one true God of heaven. And here you see Daniel doing the same thing. These interpreters of dreams, God uses them in foreign lands where they're worshiping pagan idols. And, they, and, they're, and God's using these dreams to draw them through Joseph to himself. Disclosing distresses. The baker's vision about birds. Okay, We have the butler's vision. He's going to talk about the, the grapes and squeezing it into Pharaoh's cup. The fruit of the vine. That's the, the baker. Or the butler, excuse me. The baker. He's going to be involved in, in all the pastries and the meats. And don't just get wrapped up in thinking donuts here. Uh, think anything that, you know, Pharaoh would eat, this would be the baker's task. He has a vision of birds picking at the food. And uh, I think it was the knack, the New American Commentary pointed out, made a reference back to Abraham when the covenant was cut in Genesis 15 and Abraham's task of shooing the birds away. And, and what, uh, what that commentary pointed out was the fact that in this dream, in, in, it's the dream now, okay, in this dream, the baker is the one who neglected his duty to drive the birds away. So I think that plays into how this is going to fall out when they stand before Pharaoh for the reckoning. He discerns somehow by investigation or other means, however it falls out, he discerns that the butler, the butler, was not guilty of him getting sick, if you want to imagine that with me. But the baker was neglectful or whatever. And so... Joseph's dreams are going to come to pass. Uh, the interpretations that Joseph gives for the dreams are going to come to pass, just like he says. Joseph is going to deliver his discernment. So again, we're talking about how Joseph is demonstrating his faith. These two men come and they disclose their distress to him, and then he delivers discernment to them with God's help. In verses 12 to 13, Joseph said unto him, this is the interpretation of it. Notice his boldness. Notice his confidence. Notice that there's no question about it. 
Hey, let me just take a moment to apply this, can I? You have the very words of God. When you take someone to this scripture, you don't need to hem-haw around and wonder, well, you know, maybe this. You can be absolutely certain that what God says Joseph has a confidence that many Christians lack today in that, yea, hath God said. This has been the attack of the past 150 years almost, all the way back to Westcott and Court, Dijendorf and Torf and others. No, we don't need to question God's Word. We have it. And we can stand on it. And the only reason that I can stand up with confidence each time I approach the sacred desk is because I'm absolutely certain I have God's Word. I can't tell you what a relief that is to me as a preacher of the Word of God to know I don't have to spend my time in all these textual apparatuses to try to figure out what God said. I have it. And so I can devote my efforts and my time to studying what God has given rather than plunking around in what may be out there. Absolute certainty. Use this confidence. Don't let the devil shake it. Don't let the world shake your confidence in God's Word. Demonstrate your faith in the revelation of Scripture in that it's divinely inspired and given by God. It's preserved by Him throughout the ages and we can proclaim it to a lost and dying world. You can deliver the same kind of discernment to folks today that are wondering, I don't know where the answers are. All things that pertain to life and godliness... You just need to skillfully learn how to use this to help them apply it to their lives. And so it's important that you're in it and that you know what God has said so that you can say, oh yeah, let me tell you what's going on there. Without a doubt, this is it. This is what, this is, you see how this helps so much to help people that are wandering in the, in the sea of life. And we can say, here's a buoy of hope. You can anchor to this. That's tremendous. Now, as Joseph gives the interpretation, he says, this is the interpretation of it. Three branches are three days. Pay close attention to the threes. It was Fruchtenbaum that pointed that out. Threes just permeate this whole thing. There's, there's three branches, and Joseph says, that means there's three days. Now, if you look back at verse number nine, he says, in my dream, behold, a vine was before me, and on the vine there were three branches, as though it, number one, budded, and number two, blossoms shot forth, and number three, the clusters brought forth ripe grapes. Three days, three progressions of the vine. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I, number one, took the grapes, and number two, pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and number three, I gave it into Pharaoh's hand. Three actions that this butler did. Now, Joseph gives the interpretations, uh, interpretation of it. Three branches of three days. Within three days shall Pharaoh lift up thine head. That means he's going he's gonna to have some kind of court. There's going to be a reckoning. And after that's all done, he says, you'll be lifted up and he will restore thee unto thy place. And thou shalt deliver Pharaoh's cup into his hand after the former manner when thou wast his butler. Joseph says, it's going to work out all right going to be okay. Here's what the dream means. Three days. is all you got to wait here in this dungeon any longer. Three days. Pharaoh's going to figure things out. 
He's going to restore you back to where you were before. Everything's going to be all right. But he doesn't stop there. We get to the heart of why Moses tells us this story. Joseph makes an appeal for justice. Remember, this is the day in which he's a slave, and he has no recourse. There's no due process. So as Americans, this is foreign to us because we, we fight, we die, we give our lives to protect due process and rights that we have, we believe inherently are given to us by God. That's not the culture of Egypt. Joseph here is going to make a plea, and he's going to make an appeal. He says, when you come before Pharaoh, remember me. Don't forget about me. There's a couple of things that he's going to share here about his plight as he makes his appeal for justice, which is the heart of the chapter in verses 14 and 15 that we read when we started. Joseph didn't lose faith in God's promise. He's willing to interpret the dreams that come to him. He's convinced that God's revelation still has provision for him. And yet, he might not understand all that's going on with his imprisonment. Deep down inside, he's still reaching up and he's saying, someday God's going to get me out of here. Somehow. Maybe this is the avenue. Maybe he's picking up on the providential hand of God. How do these two officers get down here with me anyway? Joseph's a wise young man. And as Joseph puts his plight before them, he points out a couple of things that have to do with the pits that he's been in, the pits that his brother threw him in, the pits of the dungeon where he's at right now. And in verse number 14, Think on me when it shall be well with thee. Show kindness unto me and make mention of me. Just just tell Pharaoh about me. Bring me out of this house. Get, get me out of here. Why? You know, every prisoner has a sob story about how they're innocent, right? There's more to this. Joseph is not just defending himself because, you know, he's sorry for being in there. No, he's legitimately saying, let me tell you, I've been a victim and victimized from the time that I left the land of the Hebrews. The land of the Hebrews. That's interesting that he would phrase this. It's a, it's a homologominum. Yeah, that one. Is that it? Hopax. Yeah, Hopax legominum. Uh, it's only used one time, and it's right here, in the land of the Hebrews. And this harkens back to the covenantal promises that were given to Abraham. It's not the land of the Canaanites that he references. It's the land of the Hebrews. So here is another indicator that he has not lost faith in the covenantal promises of God given to his great-granddad. He still believes God. He says, I was taken out of the land of the Hebrews. He doesn't blame his brothers by name here. He doesn't mention Potiphar's wife. He doesn't drag them through all the gory details. He just makes his plea. I was victimized there. They brought me down here, and then I was victimized. I didn't do anything to be thrown in this pit, to be thrown in this dungeon. I'm here without cause. I'm innocent. You know, there was someone else who was put to death innocently. And I'll let that speak for itself. Joseph has maintained his faith. But we close by looking at this, and I do hasten, because you've been kind to listen to me this long, and and, uh, we've got to wind this down tonight. But notice how the faithful is forgotten. All this, you know, we're talking about Joseph dreaming one day of getting out, making his appeal for justice. The heart of what Moses is leading us to understand, the faithful will be forgotten by the time this chapter closes. There's a day of reckoning coming, and I take this right from our King James translators and how they help us understand there's another way you can render the Hebrew here if you have a center column reference and look at verse number 20. Um, 
It says, And it came to pass the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast unto all his servants, and he lifted up the head of the chief butler and of the chief baker among his servants. Verse number 20, uh, lifted, it can be translated as reckoned. So think about that. Pharaoh's going to have a reckoning. This is a court that he's going to have. He's going to, as we mentioned, investigate, and somebody's going to get pardoned, and the other person's going to get hanged. That's the reckoning on Pharaoh's birthday. The day of reckoning happens, uh, happens, verse number 22, we read, And he restored the chief butler, the chief butler, unto his butlership again. And he gave the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So everything works out well. The day of reckoning brings restoration for the butler. But the baker, on the other hand, it works out exactly like Joseph said it would. And here's the application that I told you I'd make for that later on. Here it is. Joseph did not shun to preach the whole counsel of God. So while we have confidence that this is the very Word of God, we must do diligence to show people even that which is hard to understand. We must not shy away from teaching them that there is a hell to shun and a heaven to gain. We must include the aspect that there is a choice to make between life and death. Between heaven and hell. Not just all heaven and no hell. So I think some things could be made by way of application today that are out of balance with much of the preaching that happens across our country. I'm not saying you need to land blast people over the head with negatives all the time. It's a fair representation. Hey, this is a true representation that leads to life. This is a true representation that leads to death. There's nothing in the text that tells us what Joseph's face looked like as he was telling this to the baker. Can you imagine being in Joseph's shoes and having to tell this man with a broken heart in three days, in three days, set thine house in order, for in three days you will meet your fate. We witness to folks. We don't know if they're going to have three days or not. But you better make sure you tell them. If you die without Christ, His Word says, because you haven't believed in Him, you will not receive everlasting life. You will die in your sins. And where He goes, you cannot come. These are hard things to swallow. But the message of death is true just as the message of life. And we might be able to help them avoid avoid perishing that they'll face should they reject ultimately and face the judgment of God. So we see the day of reckoning in verses 22 and 23, and then the delay of remembrance. I'm sorry, verses 20 to 22. And then the delay of remembrance in verse 23, and we close. Resounding words here that the chapter ends with, is it not? Read it out loud with me if you would. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot Back to that heart of the chapter. Remember, Joseph made his plea. He made his appeal for justice. And what what did this man do? Same thing that men do. <laughs> he forgot him. Things got well with him, and oh yeah, it was Joseph. Now this is going to happen for about two years until something's going to happen, and then this ba- this butler's going to say, "Oh yeah, you know what? I remember my sin this day." Uh, I fell short of something. I didn't honor that man that, 
that, that, that told me I would be okay. I got to tell you about somebody, Pharaoh. It's going to come back. But in God's time, not the butler's. It's in God's time. Joseph still has some more to do here. The chief butler forgot Joseph. For two more years, Joseph is going to remain incarcerated. Where's God in all of this? Might there not be a subtle serpent, one writer said, around who will suggest to Joseph, did not God say that your brothers will bow before you? How? How is your God treating you in return for your obedience to Him? All you've tried to do is serve Him, Joseph. Where's God in all of this? Hmm. Yea, you know, all the temptations there, the bitterness, the anger, the resentment, the circumstances. We've got to get beyond that. We've got to have the long look and keep our faith in God. Being certain that you're in the center of God's will will lead you to carry your faith to others to whom God leads you. Plain The butler and the baker alike encountered the God that Joseph served because he didn't shun to preach to them and to help them understand the revelation of the Lord. We think about discouragement and again I told you we would end here and we will. But disappointment, all that Joseph has faced, God conveying truth through this man. Think about Think about others. Think about maybe somebody like a Hudson Taylor. Experiencing delay in what seems to be the unfolding of God's plan. How many years did Abraham have to wait when the promise was given to when he had a son? He received that promise at 75. He's not going to have his son Isaac until he's 100. How many years did Moses have to spend in preparation on the backside of the desert after he slayed the Egyptian and went off to go be in Midian. Forty years before God would say, now it's time to go deliver to people. How much time did David have to spend after he was anointed by Samuel, before he ascended to the throne of Israel? How much time did Paul, the apostle, have to spend on the backside of the desert being trained by Jesus Christ Himself 14 plus years from the time he was saved to the time he would go out and turn the world upside down, church See, delay doesn't mean God's done. All of these. You think of Hudson Taylor, founder of China Inland Mission. Knew the disappointment of delay. After six years of intensive service in China, he returned home as an invalid, settled with his little family in the poor east end of London. There, outside, his outside interests faded. Friends began to forget. Five long years were spent in coal-blackened streets in London. But from those years, he writes, and I quote and close, Yet without those hidden years, with all their growth and testing, how could the vision and enthusiasm of youth have been matured for the leadership that was to be? As a modern missionary history attests, when the delay ended, the great China, inland China mission emerged when the delay was done. Being honed, being sharpened to be used by God. 